If I asked you what the date was that Christmas falls on every year, you would say, it's not a trick question, you're, you're right. If I asked you what the date is that Easter falls on every year, you would be, I know it's on a Sunday, and that's about where it stops, right? Because we know it can fall in March, it can fall in April, but there is an Easter that I experienced that sticks in my mind that I have never forgot. I didn't remember the exact date when I began to think about it this week, but I knew it was when I was 14 years old. And when I did some Googling and figured it out, I figured that it was on April the 7th, 1985. There's the date on the screen. If you just wondered what 1985 looked like, there it is. And if you want to do the math and you're trying to figure it out, pastor's 49 years old. Y'all, I'm... Y'all, I'm just barely in my 40s. I'm not old. Now, that date sticks in my mind because that morning before I went to church with my family, I received the final spanking I would ever get from my dad on Easter Sunday morning. It was a life-changing encounter. It wasn't an Easter life-changing encounter with my heavenly father, but with my earthly father. And the reason why is because of of what was going on the day before and some instructions that I failed to to follow up to. Now, here's a picture of what that day looked like. This is my sister and I. We're decked out. That's 1985 right there, y'all. And as was tradition in our family... My sister and I, we would always go get new Easter outfits. And uh, on Saturday night when we got home from getting our new Easter outfits, and you see the new suit right there, styling and profiling as only we can in the 80s, my dad looks at me and he says, Son, do not take the tags off that suit. Because if you do, it's likely you will tear the material in the process of trying to take the tags off. So what do you think 14-year-old Les Woodard on... Easter Sunday morning did. I'm 14, y'all. I know everything. So I got in there and I took those tags off, just like he said not to, and I did exactly what he said I would do. I tore the material on the sleeve where the, where the tag is. And so I knew what was coming. And so when Daddy came into the room and, and looked, at, looked at it, and he realized, number one, I disobeyed by taking the tags off. Number two, I had, I had torn the suit and ripped it up, we went to his bedroom where he ripped me up. Okay? Now, let's just, this is not really an Easter thing, but my parents believed in spanking. Tressa and I believed in spanking. And if you don't know it, the Bible believes in spanking. Look at Proverbs 22 and 23. And if you don't spank your kids, you might need to believe in spanking, or you may be making some visits to some places you might not want to visit. Amen. To this day, by the way, anytime I buy a new suit jacket and I need to take the tag off, I call my dad and ask him if I have permission to do that. (laughs) Just kidding, but no kidding about this. Every time I take a tag off a suit, I go back to 14 years old in 1985. How many of you know there are consequences to disobedience? How many of you have ever been in that place where you've had your rear end tore up because you did something exactly that your parents told you not to do? Here's what I've learned in all these years. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of difference between 14-year-old less and 49-year-old less. I still have the same 
propensity to be disobedient. Because it's kind of like this, you know, dad says don't touch and I touch. If somebody says to you don't look, you want to look. If somebody says don't go, you want to go. Don't respond, you want to respond. Don't speak, you want to speak. I mean the list goes on and on and on. We were all born with a propensity to do the exact opposite of what we were told to do. And that's the first point of the message today. In this series that we're in, our Easter series is called Living Proof. And that's this. We are living proof of humanity's sinfulness. You and I. I'm sorry to give bad news right out of the gate on Easter Sunday morning. But think about it. Look around in the culture. Look around at your school or your university or the people you work with or people in your neighborhood. Or just look in the mirror. Do you see somebody every day who has a propensity to do the things that we really shouldn't do? To be disobedient. The Bible calls it a sin nature. Romans 3.23, Paul said it like this. For all have sinned. Somebody say all. all. Somebody say that includes me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John said it like this in 1 John chapter 1. He said, if we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him to be out a liar and his word is not in us. Now you might not realize this, but about 10 years ago, Lady Gaga came along and sang a song about this. It's called Born This Way. Y'all didn't expect to get Lady Gaga on Easter Sunday morning, did you? And, and nobody bet me that I could, nobody said I bet you you can't get her in the Easter sermon. <laughs> that didn't happen. But she came along with this song, you might remember it, 10 years ago. And she said, hey, you're just born this way. And you might think, okay, Lady Gaga, hey, you know some scripture. You know that we are just born with a sin nature. But uh-uh, Lady Gaga's kind of, she's kind of Gaga, you know. And she says, look at the picture, okay. She says, you know, you're, you're just born this way. You know, be you. Whoever you are, be you. That's just you. And just follow the direction that's you, and there are no repercussions to your decisions. Lady Gaga, let's go back and take her off the screen. That's enough of that. And look at what John said again. John said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive who? Ourselves. If we think we're not sinful, we're, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And he said, if we claim we've not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word to be a liar. So where does this propensity to sin come from that we all have? Well, we can say thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve made a decision to be disobedient to what God told them to do. And just like my father gave me a brand new suit of clothes and said, this is yours, enjoy it, wear it, look good in it. There's only one stipulation, don't take the tags off. Trust me, you'll mess it up. God gives Adam and Eve, a beautiful garden with everything that they could ever want and says to them, enjoy it, live in it, experience it. There's only one stipulation, don't eat from that tree. Trust me, you don't want to because if you do, you'll regret it. And Adam and Eve are the first to fulfill Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and they get the ball rolling. Now, the news doesn't get much better this morning because not only do we have a tendency to be disobedient, we also have a tendency to water down our disobedience. 
will say, well, it's not really sin. I made a mistake. It was just a blunder. It was an error in judgment. But the Greek definition of the word sin that is in your Bible is very simple. It means to miss the mark. Last week we began this series by looking at a target. And I want to bring a target back this morning and, and show you what I mean by this. Because if, if Scripture says sin means to miss the mark, okay? If my dad says don't take the tags off the suit and I do not take the tags off the suit and I'm obedient then I have hit the mark right in the center, right? Y'all with me? Say I'm with you. Okay, I, I've hit the mark. But when I do the opposite of what he says to do, which is exactly what I did, do not touch, I'm way outside of the mark. You see that? I, I, I missed the mark of what he told me to do. And we all deal with this because it might not be a do not touch. It's do not look. And we what? Y'all going to help me? Do not look and we what? Do not speak and we? Do not go and we? Okay, anybody guilty yet? Altars are open, okay? Here we go. Do not think and we think. Do not listen. We listen. Oh, don't respond on, on social media. Oh, my goodness. Some of y'all, you're out right now. Boom. <laughs> Do not respond, and we do what? We respond. And a moment ago, we said there are consequences to our disobedience. So not only did Adam and Eve disobey God, they were separated from God. They were removed from this brand new garden that, they were, that God made for them. And look at this. Not only are they guilty of sin and removed from the garden, something bigger happened. And this is the worst part of the story. Romans 5.12, Paul says, when Adam sinned, look at this. Sin entered the world, but also Adam's sin brought what? So that says before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no death. You can't imagine a world without death, right? So, death spread to who? Everyone, everyone for everyone has sinned. And Adam and Eve's problems create multiple problems. Sin enters the world. We're disconnected from God, and this disease called sin has an outcome, and it is death. And the entire left part of your Bible, the Old Testament, records this ongoing cycle of God's instructions, man's disobedience, God's wrath, man's repentance. You see that? God's instructions, man's disobedience, God's wrath, man's Repentance. And nothing can solve the ongoing disconnection from God. Man is stuck with sin and death. Did you hear me? Man is stuck with sin and death. But God. Oh, somebody say, but God. But God looked down and he sees our helpless sake. He realized we were stuck in sin and death and we needed rescuing. So he develops a rescue plan. Since we need saving, we need a savior. And all throughout the Old Testament, through a variety of leaders, kings, priests, and prophets, God predicts that help is on the way. A Messiah, a Redeemer, 
A Savior is coming. As you stand on your feet this morning, we're going to sing about that. And the writer, Phil Wickham, put it like this. Called this Savior our living hope. Let's sing this morning.
may be seated. So, our first point this morning is that we, you and I, the bad news, we are living proof of humanity's sinfulness. If you got it, say, I got it. Here comes the good news, and we just sang about the good news. I heard that. Praise the Lord. Somebody say praise the Lord. Somebody knows where we're going. It's Easter. Let's act like it. Then Jesus is living proof of the Father's love. If we are living proof of humanity's sinfulness, Jesus is living proof of the Father's love. What did we say a moment ago? But God. God the Father sees us in our helpless state. He creates a rescue plan because we need saving. He sends a Savior. And what did this love look like? What exactly was that living proof? How did Jesus demonstrate that love? Last week we said that we used the illustration of a target. And I'm going to show you what we, what we talked about last week. And if you missed it, you can go back and watch it and see how we got to this point. But last week we said... That when John the Baptist came along, he looked at Jesus, and John the Baptist was the one who was the forerunner of Jesus, and he looked at Jesus one day and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in doing that, he put a big target on Jesus' back. And so it was up to Jesus to fulfill those words that he said. And last week we said that Jesus did that through his genealogy, his family tree, through the fulfillment of the prophecies written about him, through his teaching and his miracles and the forgiveness that he gave and the compassion that he demonstrated and finally through the testimonies that were given about him. Jesus hit the bullseye. But not only would those actions hit the bullseye, but each of those were a representation of the Father's love for us. The night before Jesus went to the cross, his disciples still were unsure about this. And Philip was bold enough to say, after Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. Philip raises his hand and he says, Lord, if you'll just show us the Father, that'll be enough. After everything that they had seen from Jesus, Philip is like, Jesus, if you can just show us God, then that'll push us over the edge. And Jesus would respond, y'all look at this. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Oh, hallelujah. Jesus said, if you've seen all that I've been doing, you've seen what the Father is like. When Jesus called a group of fishermen to follow him, he was showing the love of the Father. When Jesus healed the outcasts like the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and the leper, he was showing the love of the Father. When Jesus sees a hungry crowd of 5,000 and feeds them a meal, he was showing the love of the Father. When Jesus forgave and restored the woman caught in the act of adultery, he was showing the love of the Father. Everything Jesus did served as living proof that he was the example of the Father. Father's love. If we are living proof of humanity's sinfulness, then Jesus is living proof of the Father's love. I deserved the discipline that I got on April 7, 1985, because I was disobedient to my Father. But that's not the rest of that story, John. 
Because my dad did that morning what he did every time he disciplined me. When he finished spanking my rear end, we sat on the bed. And he put his arms around me. And he said, I love you. I'm proud of you. I care for you. And many times with tears in his eyes would restore me after that moment. The wrath of my father was always followed with a demonstration of his love. And what my earthly father did for me many times is what our heavenly father does for us. Decades of God's wrath that you read about in the Old Testament were followed up with the ultimate demonstration of his love. God the Father saw our helpless state. He realized we were stuck in sin and death and needed rescuing, so he develops a plan. He knew we needed a saving, so he sends us a Savior. And if we are living proof of humanity's sinfulness, then Jesus is living proof of the Father's love. And there's no verse throughout all of Scripture that says that better than the one that is the most familiar to the saint and the sinner. John 3.16, when Jesus would have a conversation with a religious leader named named Nicodemus who would come to him at night because he was afraid. and, And he looked at him in that conversation and he said, God so loved the world. This is what we sang to open up this service. That he gave his one and only son that what? Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. What a familiar verse. And maybe sometimes it loses its meaning. It's the most quoted scripture of all time for a reason. But tucked away inside those two verses is one word that fully demonstrates the lengths and depths that God the Father went in sending His Son to be living proof of His love. It's the bold-faced word on the screen, and it's the word whoever. And that means whoever means whoever. Just like all have sinned, whoever is the remedy to all that have sinned. That means whoever can come to the Father. Paul tried to break it down like this in Ephesians with his prayer for the church of Ephesus when he said, I pray that you, God's people, can grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. But Jesus didn't just come to perform miracles, offer compassion, and show us the love of the Father. Our greatest need was an instruction, provision, healing, or comfort. Our greatest need was to be saved from sin. See, you can meet some of the needs on this board, but still have your greatest need unmet. Remember our previous illustration? To sin means to miss the mark. Did you notice that when Jesus came along, he hit the mark? Dead sinner. Didn't miss it at all. And The way he proved that he was the Lamb of God is that he hits the mark as the only sinless person ever to walk the planet earth. To be the Lamb of God, to be that sacrifice, he had to be perfect. And the only way we could be saved was that he took our place as that perfect, sinless Lamb of God. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin. Somebody say no sin. 
no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A moment ago we talked about that conversation that took place between Nicodemus and Jesus early in Jesus' ministry. I want to show you a short two-minute clip from the television miniseries called The Chosen. And let's listen in on that conversation. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. That's our best life now. Jesus didn't come just to provide for your needs. Those are all bonus things. Jesus came to save your soul from sin, death, and hell. Jesus would look across the table at his disciples after Philip asked him that question about, can we see the Father? And within a few minutes, he would look at them and he would say, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. If somebody asks me, Les, why are you a Christian? Why have you been a Christ follower most of your life? It would be because of this. Because Jesus is not, he's the only one who comes along and doesn't just say it. He does it. He didn't just say no one will love their friends greater than laying down their life. He would lay down his life. Romans would say it like this. Paul says, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did Jesus die? How did he die for us? He died in the most brutal way possible. 
bounce around between the four gospel writers. And I want you to hear the story one more time. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hell, King of the Jews. And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later, knowing everything had now been fulfilled and finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to his lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus and going to Pilate he asked for Jesus body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him and Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb and Friday ended Saturday, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, this deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third, what, third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Sunday morning. Early. 
on the first day of the week while it was still dark Mary Magdalene the one who had been forgiven of so much was the first one to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved and said they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and I don't know where they have put him so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb both were running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And it might have looked something like this.
Fridays disappoint me. Sunday's empty too. Since when has impossible ever seemed?
may be seated. Somebody say praise the Lord. Anybody just wake up? On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember? Somebody say remember. Remember, he told you he was going to do it. Remember, he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, and be raised again. And then they remembered his words. If we are living proof of humanity's sinfulness, and Jesus is living proof of the Father's love, then the resurrection is living proof of death's defeat. The cross had the final word on sin, but the resurrection had the final word on death. Satan knew the only way he could keep us stuck in sin and death was to get rid of Jesus. But that's where he made a gross, terrible miscalculation. Because what he forgot about was that that was not The first time in that borrowed garden tomb that Jesus had stood eye to eye, toe to toe with death. One day he was doing his normal ministry and a synagogue leader, a synagogue leader, y'all, named Jairus came to him and said, There's only one hope for my daughter who's about to die. Will you come and Lay your hands on her. And by the time Jesus got there, she was already dead. And they said, go home, Jesus. She's dead. There's nothing you can do. And they began the crying and the wailing. And Jesus said, shut her down. Get out. I just want mama and daddy and the inner circle. Give me Peter, James, and John. Three men, brother Jimmy, who are going to keep this thing going. And they walked in that room. And he spoke the word. And she got up. Hallelujah. But I'm going to tell you that was just the first time. The second time Jesus ruined a funeral. A mama was coming out of town, a widow with her, with her son who was laying there dead. They were on their way to the funeral, leaving the, leaving the city of Nain. And Jesus, the scripture said, had compassion on her and saw her and said, stop the funeral. He reached down, put his hand on the casket, and the boy was raised from the dead. But that wasn't the best one. Because just a few days before Jesus would go to the cross, he saved the best for last. When he got a text from his friends Mary and Martha that said, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus said, oh, he's sick. This looks like an opportunity for the Father to get a little more glory before I go to the cross. And so the scripture said he waited And Lazarus died, and he showed up, and they thought he was late, John. 
But he said, oh no. He said, I, I hear you. But Jesus would walk to that tomb. And he would speak words that would be the forerunner of what he would do and what we're celebrating here today. As he had this conversation with Lazarus' sister Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I want to ask somebody in Rankin Church of God today, do you believe this? I'm going to tell you what, you better believe it when somebody that you know dies and they wheel them through those doors and they put them at the front and we preach their funeral because I've preached some funerals that were awful, awful, terrible and sad and despondent because that person that was up front did not know the Lord. But I'm going to tell you, there's a difference, Patricia McDaniel, when we rolled your mama down the aisles a few weeks ago and we knew she was in the presence of Jesus. See, he grossly miscalculated that for death, Jesus had been there, done that. Can I use a 90's term this morning? <laughs> Paul would say it like this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all. Remember, all have sinned and now Paul says, all are forgiven. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In Ephesians, Paul would say, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of this world, the spirit that's now at work in those who are disobedient. That's what we've been talking about this morning. But, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. Romans 8, 11, Paul would say the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you I said it last Sunday what entered in Adam exited through Jesus we are living proof of humanity's sinfulness Jesus is the living proof of the Father's love and the resurrection is living proof of death's defeat. And I believe truly the best and greatest examples of that, of that living proof, is what we see right here in this room today. You see, there's two groups of people here today. We're here, so we're just going to go there. Somebody say, go there, Pastor. There's two groups of people here today. People who have a personal relationship with Jesus. Who walk with Him every day and know that they can't live life without Him. Who realize the condition that they're in and know they need a Savior. Not just to help them when they're sick or when they need 
provision or help them raise their kids, but because without Jesus we are lost and undone. And then there's a group of people here today who you just kind of know about the Lord. Maybe you come with somebody because it's what you do at Easter. I want to ask you the question today, how long are you going to be the walking dead? How long are you going to believe the lie that Satan's told you? How long are you going to keep running from what you know is true? There's some people in this room, you're running. You're running from God. You know the truth. And it's uncomfortable to be here this morning. And that's just the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention to say, Stop running. Come on home. What more do I have to do? I gave the Father. Father gave the Son for you. See, we are living proof. And we could go around this room right now and I could say, how many of you here have, have seen God? You've got living proof of God providing for you. Will you lift your hand if you've seen God provide for you the miraculous? How many of you are living proof that God has healed your body or somebody you know that you know it wasn't a doctor, it was the Lord? How many of you are living proof that in a time of despondency with no hope, the Holy Spirit moved in and gave you hope when there should be no hope? How many of you have not lived in fear over the last year, but you have lived in freedom because you know where our truth and our hope lies? Hallelujah. How many of you were blind, but now you see? How many of you were lost, but now you're found? How many of you have dug a real deep hole, but Jesus pulled you out of that hole? Hallelujah. Oh, I see all over this room, those of you, my goodness, there's people in this room who used to come to this service just like this every year, and they'd come in on a Sunday morning once a year at Easter. But now they're here every week. Hallelujah. That's living proof that God is on the move. Walking, talking, living proof. And here's what the choice is today. You can breeze in and breeze out. But you never know when death's going to come knocking on your door. And I don't serve Jesus just because it's fire insurance. I serve Jesus because he saved me and I can't do life without it. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's sing it.
bow our heads all over the house this morning. Nobody looking around as we come to prayer this morning. Father, we thank you today for your word that we've heard. Through music, through worship, through video, through the scripture, through the preached word. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your presence in this place. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship together this year that we did not have last year. Father, I ask you right now to move in the hearts and the lives of those who are here this morning. You know where every person is. And God, I ask you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would right now reach out and bring love and grace and draw all men unto you with nobody looking around this morning does anybody here would be brave enough to say Les you've been talking to me all morning I am away from God and I don't want to leave out of here the same way I came I need to make a change. I want to make a decision to follow Christ. I want to pray with you today. And if you would be brave enough to raise your hand, I promise I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you down or out. I just want to pray with you right where you are. Please do not leave the same way you came in today. Do not push away the Holy Spirit. If the Lord is speaking to you today, I want to pray with you. Will you raise your hand right now and put it back right back down? Anybody in this room today who would say, Pastor, you're talking to me. You've been talking to me today. I need to make a decision for Christ. My life is not going in the right direction, and I know it. How long are you going to fight it? How long are you going to run? Some of you are thinking, if I can just make it 10 more minutes, I can get out of here and I don't have to think about it anymore. That's not true. Because you're here today because somebody loves you and invited you and they're praying for you. And the Holy Spirit's not going to let you go. So I encourage you to make that decision today. Make things right. Begin your own story anew. Anybody, one more time, anybody here would say, I need to make a decision for Christ today. Anybody raise their hand and say that they need to do that I want us to pray together this morning and because I know and feel so strongly that there are those today who need to pray this prayer I'm going to pray it anyway and whether you raise your hand or not you can pray this today and you can make things right and make a change and I'm going to trust that you're going to pray this prayer with us today Saying, Jesus, I want to accept you into my life. I'm going in the wrong direction. I've heard that this morning, and I want to make a change. Can we, can we pray this together, and will you repeat this after me today? Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me. I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he took my sins to the cross. I believe he died in my place. I believe you raised him to life.
I'd like to trust him now as my Savior. I want to follow him as my Lord. From this day forward, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look at me. I am a very available, personable pastor. You can email me or call me, and I will meet you for coffee. It's got to be Dunkin' Donuts and donuts, and it's got to be Krispy Kreme, and I'll buy. I'll meet you at my office. But if you need to talk and you need to get beyond this moment, you got questions, I'll do the best to talk with you through it. I told somebody this morning, I said, I don't have all the answers, but I'll sure sit down with you and talk with you about Jesus and pray with you. Guys, more than ever before, we need Jesus. I'm going to tell you, things are not going to get any better here. I don't care who we elect. My hope, as I have said, is not in Washington. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, His righteousness, and an empty tomb. And if this last year has done nothing for us, may it remind us that we can't do it without Him. And we need Him. Amen? I love you. I thank you for worshiping with us today at Rinkin Church of God. I know you're almost ready to go, but these guys have got one more song that's going to blow the roof off. So if you got if you got one more minute or two in you, we want you to celebrate one more time the resurrection of Jesus. God bless you. Have a happy Easter. We love you.
stay in just a little extra. And remember, there is no family ministry night on Wednesday night, so enjoy that time with your family. We'll see you later.